0: Welcome to the Holy Smokes Podcast, a show about faith, friendship, fine tobacco and drink. I'm Steve Ryder, and I'm in my garage. <laughs> Which is awesome. It's a beautiful day here in Colorado, mid-80s, nice light breeze. Yeah. And we got some thunderstorms about to move in, and I am with a longtime friend of mine. Indeed. Gary Schneeberger. Gary. Steve, welcome to the Holy Smokes podcast.
1: I am uh, I am honored to be on. I've uh, I've listened for a long time. I was actually uh, I remember when you started this. I remember when all this was birthed. So I'm happy to be one of the babies to come out of
0: it. Well, you have, are someone that I have wanted to have on for quite a while. In fact, it was in March of last year, 2020. I was going back to Wisconsin for the boys. Right. Basketball tournament, high school. One of my college roommates had the number one seed for Division Seven, undefeated, and it was looking like they were going to win state. And a uh, little something happened that canceled the tournament. Yeah. Called COVID, and yep. I ended up having to fly back. And so I have not been back to Wisconsin, or at least down to the southeastern part of the state where you are. Yep and so uh
1: so i i had to come to colorado i had to come to the man i had to come here and as long as basketball played a part in the story that you just told we are recording this when
0: the day after our milwaukee bucks won the freaking nba title
1: fear the deer baby
0: (laughs) fear the deer bucks and six bucks and six bobby 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 so first question what you smoking
1: a long time trusted friend of mine yeah. loaned me, well not loaned <laughs> me because he's not getting it back, gave me a uh, Cohiba Cuban. So I am uh, I am smoking that. So thank you. I wanted you.
0: I wanted you to celebrate well. Yes. The big win last night. This
1: whole interview thing started with just me wanting to come over and say hi and smoke a celebratory cigar with you. I didn't even know you were in
0: town until you texted me this afternoon. So
1: so we're killing two birds with one stone. We're having a celebratory uh, cigar and I'm getting on the Holy Smokes podcast.
0: All right. So you are a cheesehead, a fellow cheesehead. Indeed. Tell me about your growing up years.
1: Wow. I grew up in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which, as you indicated, is southeastern, about as far south as you can get before you get into northern Illinois. Yep. So that's why, while you and I are simpatico on the Bucks and simpatico and the on the Packers, when it comes to baseball, I grew up because WGN broadcast Cub games, I was a, you know, Diehard Cub fan, still
0: I'm a die Hard Cub fan. Truly so. sad, truly sad. I know, especially I know. Especially with those years of Harvey's Wallbangers and Robin Yount and Cecil Cooper. And
1: I, I have to fall
0: back on something
1: meatloaf said. Two out of three ain't bad, right? <laughs> 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 so, uh, yeah, so, I mean, sports were a big part of my childhood. Growing up in my neighborhood, I had great friends about my age who were, we were all the sons of single moms either through, right, uh, death, through divorce, through, through whatever, there was like four or five of us who were sons of single moms who grew up playing baseball together, who grew up throwing footballs underneath the streetlights, maybe sometimes, as long as the Kenosha police aren't listening, broke those streetlights, <laughs> throwing rocks at them. And uh, they were just, I described them as the, the buddies of my youth as the first people I loved who did not share my blood. And the beautiful part of that is that we have maintained our friendship yeah. through those years, through almost 40 years now. Wow. And that includes a period of time of 28 years after I moved away from Wisconsin, where you and I first met in yeah. Colorado, but even before Colorado, I was in Texas, I was in Nebraska. I was in you know, um, a number of different places as a typical itinerant journalist. When I moved back home to Kenosha in 2016, all the guys still live there and we just, we still get together and we still hang Mm. out and we still talk and we still smoke cigars together. And it's just, um, you know, as you've discovered, I think we've talked about this or around the edges of this, the friends of your childhood, you meet people throughout your life and they, and they mean a lot to you, but there's something about those first friendships that you form in childhood that uh, is everlasting and special.
0: Mm. That's awesome. Now your home life at a very young age, wasn't healthy. Correct. Talk about that.
1: Again, uh, to be in a neighborhood full of boys raised by single women, that means dad's not in the home. And my parents got divorced when I was nine. My father was not a perfect man. My father was uh, very much, he had a bit of a temper issue and he was not, um, he had some trouble uh, reining that in. He took that out on my mom, on some of the kids. I'm the baby of the family and there's 14 years between me and my oldest sibling and seven years between me and the one closest to me. So it was described to me this uh, past weekend uh, in talking to some family members that I sort of had a different childhood in some ways with my parents than my siblings did. My dad had kind of mellowed out and kind of learned from his mistakes that had kind of acted in a different way. And we had a great relationship He got remarried and was married before he passed away a couple months ago to my stepmom for almost 45 years. And my mom also got remarried a couple years before she passed away in the 90s. And I always tell people, as hard as it was to grow up as a child of divorce, and that's a difficult thing, my parents were happier and better suited with the partner's the spouses they got married to after they split up. My mom's husband, my stepfather, Irv, was, uh, you know, my mom always loved to sing. He was a uh, local celebrity organ player, like an electric organ, right? You know, not like the doors. He was like, you know, standards and and that kind of stuff. And she got to sing with him. And that just Mm. brought her such joy. And my dad and my stepmom, like I said, my dad and my stepmother, I realized... I knew it all the time. It wasn't a surprise, but the numbers were a surprise to me. My dad was married to my stepmother twice as long as he was married to my mother. Mm. And he was happy. He found someone. So both of my parents found their perfect matches after each other and maintained a... Civil? Absolutely civil. They raised me together uh, mm. as their youngest child. They uh, I spent mm. summers with my dad on vacations and saw him every Sunday and... Uh, it was not an easy upbringing, but I learned lessons from it. My parents learned lessons from it. And you know one of the things uh, that has helped me get through it is that my dad was not shy about saying, I love you or I'm sorry. And that made me not shy about saying, I love you, which has been everything in relationships and just emotionally mm-hmm. for me. A lot of guys of his generation, he was 93 when he passed away in May. A lot of guys of his generation could, you know, show love, throw a ball, punch you in the shoulder, but saying the words I love you weren't common for a lot of people. I've been to a lot of men's retreats. Folks who are listening to this, if you remember back about 20 years ago, men's retreats were all the rage in evangelical churches. You go away for a weekend, they take your watches away so you weren't looking at time. And I heard so many men say, I never knew my dad loved me. He never said he loved me. My dad never said he loved me. And I never had that problem because my dad always said he loved me. That's cool. And, you know, yes, there were some things and there were some behaviors that weren't always loving, but I'm guilty of that myself and some things that I've done, you know, and and just nobody's perfect. And he knew that he admitted that he sought forgiveness for that with my mother. I mean, one of my the most powerful moment I ever witnessed between my parents and I only saw them kiss once, by the way, Mm -hmm. I can only recall seeing them kiss once the first time I got married they were walking around in the hall and or like outside, I got married outside and somebody took a picture of them. We had those portable Polaroid cameras mm-hmm. on the, someone took a picture of them kissing. Like it was, it was just like a peck on that. I was like, Oh my gosh, my parent, I can't, I couldn't believe I saw that. But when my mom died, my dad came to the wake and we were all the kids. There were five of us. I'm mm-hmm. the baby of five. We were all there. And, um, we were kind of milling about my mom's casket and crying and, you know, speaking to her. And my dad was kind of awkwardly milling about. And finally, when it cleaned out by her casket, I saw my dad on his knees leaning into her casket and whispering. And I never asked him what he said because it was none of my business. He was doing his final business with her. And mm. um, that was another great example of, again, someone who was not afraid to mm. say he was, uh, he was sorry and... Um, that's made me, you know, trust me. As you well know, I've had to say, I'm sorry to you. So, I mean, we've, we, you know, i, well, I we learned, each have, I mean, uh, yeah, I have as well, do well, exactly. you? Exactly, yeah, and, and yeah. I've learned to say it and receive yeah. it because yeah. of the way I was raised, and that's a good thing.
0: That's awesome, that's cool. So, high school, you started writing for your high school paper, right? Mm-hmm. What got you into that? My mom got
1: me into that. I was, um, it's funny, the Packers. My mom bought me an electric typewriter when I was about 11, 12, 13, something like that. And I remember I would watch Monday Night Football, which is the only time the Packers were ever on like a national right? Monday Night Football, oh my gosh, the Packers are on. And I remember watching a game, and I, I would type out the play-by-play on this computer. I mean, on this
0: computer. Typewriter.
1: On this electric typewriter. For those of you who are too young to have ever seen a typewriter, it is indeed what a computer does now. You did on a typewriter back in those days. And my mom bought me an electric typewriter, and that was, you know, I was always a, an imaginative kid, I guess. And I would, in addition to keeping play-by-play meticulously on Packer games, I wrote scripts for my friends and I to act out. So at the time, when I was that age, Starsky and Hutch was a TV show, it was a cop show. Cop shows were all the rage in the, late, in the mid to late 70s. And Starsky and Hutch was the biggest one. And there was also one called Beretta um, that I was also a big fan of. So I, uh, in grade school, decided I was gonna form my own superhero cop duo <laughs> with a buddy of mine. And just like Starsky and Hutch, we created Ba, which stood for Beretta, that was me, and Fum, which stood for Billy Fumo, who was my friend. We were Ba and Fum. And I wrote scripts. I still have them. I still have two (laughs) of the scripts that my mom kept of us doing. And here's the funny part about that. We were reading them. When I moved back home to Wisconsin in 2016, I, I hooked up again with my friend Billy Fumo, who had not ever moved away. And we were, reading those, we were reading through those scripts, and for some reason, when I was 12, the most savage weapon I could use as a super cop was a monkey wrench. Every episode I wrote had at least two episodes where the bad guys got whipped with what... I, I, I don't even know what a monkey wrench is. I, it, it was apparently just big wrench that you would whip, but Buck could really wield a monkey wrench back in the late 1970s, so...
0: I don't know if you've heard the Ethan Nicole episode, Ethan I'm Nicole not. with Babylon B. There was a big age difference between Ethan and his youngest brother and Malachi. And Malachi created this character called Axe Cop. Hmm. That's all he carried around was this axe. And, it, and Ethan started, as an illustrator, <laughs> as an artist, right. he started drawing these internet cartoons and it went crazy about Axe Cop and he basically took the stories that Malachi would create as Malachi was playing with these toys he was six at the time and he would Ethan would illustrate these stories out with the most ridiculous stuff happening and anyway a cartoon ended up coming out of that Axe Cop
1: yeah and that you know there's something to be said about the fertile minds of children right I mean oh, you, yeah. you see it as a dad I see it as a stepdad it's embarrassing for me to read the the misspellings in those old scripts but there's some not bad action in there. And then we would, like, mix up. We'd have crossover episodes before crossover episodes were cool. Really, Bun, Fum teamed up with Starsky and Hutch. And one time we teamed up with the guys from SWAT. SWAT was a TV show in the 70s, everybody. Before it was a TV show, now on CBS. So, yeah, we did, uh, we had all that kind of stuff. And we would act them out. My buddies and I would act them out in the neighborhood. And that was, you know, part of the reason I talked, uh, you know, earlier about, the friends of your youth there's there's nothing like them and that was some of the experiences that we shared mm. we're we we're, we're, until the street lights came on we were playing super cop out in the out in the field
0: <laughs> so you went to school yep university of wisconsin Park parkside. parkside in
1: my hometown of kenosha yeah
0: and you studied journalism there mm. no you didn't
1: no they didn't have a journalism program they had a. I uh, i was an english major which I used to argue at the time, no one will know who this, if you're of a certain age, you'll know what this means. I said, all an English degree really got me qualified to do was talk like uh, uh, Richard Dawson, who used to host Family Feud, because he was British. But I, I got an English degree, but while I was in college, I got my first paid writing gig at age 17 for a local TV guide magazine in Kenosha called Happenings Magazine run by a gentleman named Frank Carmichael, who was the first one to ever pay me. I still have a copy of the check. Mm. Uh, I made 20 bucks for one TV review column. I was the TV critic. Uh, My first review was on the A-Team. That'll tell you how long ago that was. (laughs) Um, And he paid me, uh, and that got me addicted to bylines. It got me addicted to telling stories in print. And that then, after happenings... After college, uh, I hooked on with um, a daily newspaper in Racine, Wisconsin, which is just the one city up north from Kenosha, and that got me into a two-decade newspaper career.
0: So you started there at Racine? Yeah. That was your first job? That was my
1: first full-time newspaper job, daily newspaper
0: job. Where would you go after that?
1: Let's see if I can get this order right. Yeah. I left uh, Racine in 1989 and took a job with a sister paper, in Davenport, Iowa, the Quad Cities in uh, in Iowa. Quad Cities, Iowa, and Illinois. Did that for a couple of years. That was a rewarding time because even I was a features reporter and I had a, uh, I created this Hollywood interview column because I was so into Hollywood stuff. And as you can tell, I was writing TV scripts when I was 12, right? There's no TV, but they were all acted out. Stage plays, I guess. I would interview celebrities, and it became syndicated throughout the Lee Enterprises newspaper group. So when I was in my early 20s, I was writing this, it was called Hollywood Hotline. I still remember it. I took this, this terrible, I had a mullet, and I took this <laughs> column signature, Steve. I took this column signature, and I wanted it to look like I was smarter. So now I wear glasses because I'm, you know, 56 and I need them. But at the time I was in my early 20s, I bought clear, fake glasses and I wore them for my column sig photograph because I wanted to look smart and I had one of those phones with a cord one of those big like plug-in home phones and I had it and it was like Hollywood hotline and I'm on the phone, you know, I'm on the horn talking to these Hollywood people but you know I got some good interviews I interviewed Charlton Heston which was a you know was a huge one I was talking to him and he I was calling him, Mr. Heston, Mr. Heston, Mr. Heston. Right, the Ten Commandments and Ben-Hur and, yeah. you know, just all of that. And uh, this is the late 80s.
0: Soylent Green.
1: Yeah. I mean, he was Planet a legend. Planet of the Apes. He's a legend. Yeah. And I'm calling him, Mr. Heston, Mr. Heston, Mr. Heston. And he says to me, oh, please, call me Chuck. And I said back to him, I said, I'm sorry, but the best I can do is Mr. Chuck. That's, <laughs> so I told Charles Heston the best I could do was call him Mr. Chuck. But um, that was, uh, you know, that. How did he
0: respond to he that? Laughed.
1: Uh, he laughed. He laughed. I also got him uh, to say, and I'm, I'm not sure what the rating is on our
0: uh, It's on your It's podcast. open. It's open.
1: Okay, so I can say this. So I'm working for the Racine Journal Times, a daily newspaper in, a, in the relatively small town of Racine, Wisconsin. And I interviewed Charlton Heston because he did a, um, he was doing a TV show. He was doing a Dynasty, was a TV soap opera in the 80s. And he did a spinoff of Dynasty. And he was a star of that. And people were like, oh my gosh, Charlton Heston, all those roles that we just named, now he's doing television, you know, how the media have fallen. And I, I asked him a question about that. And he said, oh, that's bullshit, pure bullshit, Charlton Heston says. So I'm 22 years old. I go to my editors, and I'm arguing as a reporter, right? A kid reporter. I've got like two years under my belt. (laughs) And I'm like, this should go, first of all, it should go on the front page because it's Charlton Heston, and the local paper got an interview with him. And second of all, the fact that a big celebrity like him said bullshit, we should put it in the paper. And my editor did it. Wow. I still can find that clip online through newspapers.com. Charles Heston saying bullshit on the front page of the Racine Journal Times in 1988. Years later in my journalism career, when I became an editor, reporters would come up and try to get me to. Oh, well, it was important that I'm like, you got to be kidding me, man! I sold that when I was I was in your shoes, but then that that's not going to fly with me. We're not going to put that. We're going to put, you know, F dot 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 or whatever we have to put. People will know what you mean. You don't have to spell it out. But for some reason, my editors let me get away with that. So that was one of my. My uh, early journalism calling cards. Charlton Heston said bullshit to me in the the Racine (laughs) Journal Times.
0: Quad Cities then.
1: Quad Cities then turned into. Let's see. I go from the Quad Cities to uh, Victoria, Texas. That was my first go around in Texas. I I worked twice in Texas. Once in uh, Victoria, which is. The town slogan for Victoria on the sort of the Gulf side-ish Southern Texas was the crossroads of South Texas, which now that I'm in public relations, I'm like, that's a really bad nickname for a city because it means there's nothing good here. We're the crossroads of South Texas. If you want to a, get a,
0: a road that goes
1: this right, way and exactly. a road that happens to go
0: this way. And we're right in the middle. Right.
1: If you want to get to a fun place like Houston or uh, Corpus Christi, you have to go through us. But you don't want to stay here too long. And indeed, it was a city like that. But that was where I, I first became an editor. I got promoted to become uh, an assistant city editor and then became uh, an assistant managing editor. And that's when I really went to school and learned journalism. How so? I had a teacher who uh my the editor of that paper, the Victoria Advocate, was a man named Jim Bishop. And Jim Bishop had worked uh actually, oh my gosh, in Colorado Springs, Colorado for the Gazette. Really? And the Gazette won a Pulitzer Prize. And yeah. For for uh coverage of uh an explosion and, and uh like a it was a chemical explosion. And uh, he, his name wasn't on it, but his fingerprints were. He was the editor who edited that project. And he was just a, a, a fabulous storyteller and a fabulous journalist.
0: You've talked about him a bunch on Facebook. Yeah. His influence yeah. on your life. He
1: was my mentor. Yeah. yeah. He was my journalism mentor. I learned so much on how to both be a, a shaper of words and a ranger of words from him, but also how to be a boss, how to lead people because he was very good at that as well. Really? So that was where I got into management, where I got into editing, and that's when my journalism career really became a career. It wasn't just a job. I always loved to write, and it was fun, and it was, you know, it was a kick to get Charlton Heston to swear, but you know, to be able to do important stories, important journalism that, you know, um, there was an old movie that no one's ever seen and no one's ever liked called um, Jamie Lee Curtis and John uh, Travolta, they were reporters for Rolling Stone, and John Travolta was this hotshot reporter from Rolling Stone. And he would say about interviewing people that the purpose of a reporter's job was to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. And that's what I picked (laughs) up. And that's what I applied as, as an editor after working under Jim Bishop's tutelage. And we did some really good journalism that that I'm still proud of to this day. We did, uh, I moved on after Victoria. I spent, I had a cup of coffee in Scottsbluff, Nebraska as editor of my own paper before I was 30. That didn't work out. But then I ended up again in Texas in a smaller town up north, which um, while it didn't have a bad slogan, it was when they made a Texas version of Monopoly, Wichita Falls was the first purple, cheap property around go that'll tell you all you need (laughs) to know about Wichita Falls
0: but we did a series where in Texas at Wichita Falls
1: north uh, so it's north uh, of Dallas and we did a series of stories when I was the managing editor of that paper that examined the papers all the talk right now of institutional racism and this was in the in the early 90s mid 90s we did a story on the papers way that the city of Wichita Falls and the paper itself treated African-Americans to the point that they wouldn't, when Max Schmeling, German Caucasian boxer was knocked out by Joe Lewis, Mm -hmm. who was African-American, US boxer. In the Times Record News of Wichita Falls, we went back in the archives. The photo was of Max Schmeling on the ground, on the Mm -hmm. canvas. You couldn't show a black boxer in the 1940s Mm. in wichita falls texas Mm. they had you know horrific headlines that would say man n-word killed in shooting and we we told the papers dirty laundry we told the city's dirty laundry Mm. of what racism was like in that community and that was in the in the mid 90s oh. one of the most uh, powerful and important things i was ever involved in as a
0: journalist mm. where did the idea for that germinate
1: another great editor i i worked for a man named carol wilson uh, carol wilson was the editor of the uh, times record news and carol was he was one of those afflict the comfortable guys you know he was uh, interesting he's a you know uh, and he wanted to shine a light on what was wrong with society mm. right and that's the, the that was i mean there's a lot of talk we can have today about what journalism has become and i'll be the first to talk about it but
0: and we will get to it
1: right he the way that he ran that newspaper was to tell stories that challenged the community. We weren't there to pat the community on the head and say, you got everything right. We were there. Hmm. Spotlight people doing things right? Absolutely. But when people were doing things wrong, we reported on that. That's what journalism's about. That's what, you know, Woodward and Bernstein were about when they were Woodward and Bernstein, before Woodward ended up becoming what he's become today. There was something about exposing things that needed to be exposed, bringing things to light that Mm. needed to be brought to light, not to be sensational, but to be factual. That was, uh, I mean, those were halcyon days, truly. It was a great time. The late eighties and the early to mid nineties were a great time.
0: To be a journalist. Yeah, because
1: it was post Watergate. So there was a lot of, in many ways, sort of the golden age of investigative journalism, even in small towns like Wichita Falls, which wrote a, you know, an eight part series it was called, I remember what it was called, Wichita Falls in Black and White, it was called. Ooh. Yeah. And it was- How was it, it received? As you would expect, which made Carol Wilson, the editor, thrilled to no end. Because again, <laughs> he was afflicting the comfortable. The, the folks who had lived by this system in which you know, one group of people were, had kept another group of people down to the point of not even being able to acknowledge them in the newspaper, he was happy with that because it opened eyes. It opened people's eyes up to what the truth was. And I still believe, he believed, I believe to this day. It it changed things. It changed perspectives. We had a reporter who worked on that series. He was a young reporter. And I still remember, and it was, I don't know if he smokes cigars. I have no idea if he's a Christian and he likes to enjoy a a drink. He, He did then as did I. We'll get to that too. I'm yes, sure. we will be. Getting uh, to that. But uh, Cody Acock was his name. And I remember Cody was so moved. He was a young kid from Arizona, came into Wichita Falls, really didn't kind of know. He was not naive, but sort of inexperienced to the world. And uh, he was moved by the things that he found as he was investigating how African-Americans were regarded in North Texas, in the South people's eyes were opened and I think lives were changed. And that is important. That's a legacy, mm. you know, worth having, I think. Mm. And that, you know, that I left that behind and some other things that I did as a journalist. As, when I left journalism, I left that behind. I sleep well at night knowing that.
0: Mm. Before we get into your transition out of journalism, mm-hmm. talk about your, from an insider's view someone who came up during that golden age of investigative journalism. What do you think the state of journalism is today?
1: Imperiled. First of all, pure journalism is far less easy to come by, meaning opinion rules the day. Mm -hmm. Right? Drives me nuts to this day when people will say, Sean Hannity is so biased or... Rachel Maddow is so biased. No, they're yes. not biased. They get paid to have an opinion. That's their job, right? <laughs> like the editorial page of newspapers. Mm-hmm. They get paid to have an opinion. The news pages shouldn't have an opinion. And the news anchors shouldn't have an opinion. And unfortunately, many times they do. Are there still good ones out there? Yes. Who harder- do you think are the good ones? <sighs> you know, um, the, truly, at the national level, it's hard to find because... Mm. Even if you report a story at the national level in a, in a factual base, it will get the anchors or some of the talkers, like a Sean Hannity or Rachel Maddow, will take it, use it. Twist it. Twi- yeah. Cherry pick. Because we've gone from the idea that, Carol, that they had in, in the movie with Travolta and uh, Jamie Lee Curtis to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. We've gone on now to gotcha and to sensationalize. When I was in newspapers, if anybody who's listening has access to find a newspaper, if there's still one in your city, look at it. There's a headline over a story, there's a name probably on it, a byline, and if there's a photo with it, there should be a caption on the photo. When I was in newspapers, we looked at the reader as someone who was busy, and if they were only a skimmer, they couldn't read the whole story, we wanted to give them that story if they could skim. So the headline was packed with information. The subheadline was packed with information. The cut line, the caption on the photo, was packed with different information. Because you could skim, you could find those three points, and you could get an idea of what the story was about if you didn't have enough time. Mm-hmm. It's the exact opposite today. Today, you go online and they'll tell you, you won't believe how fat this star from 1987 got today. And you'll have to click through 57 things to see how fat he or she got. It's not about, it's about making you click by not telling you anything. Clickbait. Right. By hooking your interest, but not giving you information. And so much of what we're given today in the media is rooted in that today. So it's a totally different, a totally foreign practice to me. I mean, I will, I still get a newspaper, right? I'm old school. I like to hold it in my hand and I still get it. And I'm just I'm flabbergasted at some of the things that pass for stories that aren't really stories, that aren't told well. There was a way of writing a story. I was just talking to my uncle about it, who was an advertising manager for the hometown newspaper for years. And the style was, look it up on Wikipedia. It's called the inverted pyramid. You write the story so that all the most pertinent information was the in the top. top. And then as you got down and down, you added details. It sort of added accent to it, added flavor to it. But you could hack off the bottom of that story.
0: And still get enough of an idea. Correct.
1: You may not get the sprinkles on top of your sundae and maybe the caramel sauce, but you got the ice cream and you got a couple of cherries maybe. You could cut it off because you had to cut the story to fit it in the paper. Nowadays, they don't do that. Nowadays, they just kind of just sort of throw it all like, a Jackson Pollock painting against the wood, like paint on the wall, and see what sticks, and they just go with it from that. So I, I think
0: there are fewer trained journalists working today, and um, is that the, is that a problem when you say trained journalists? Is that a problem of the universities?
1: Yeah, I mean, yes, it's a problem of the universities in that they're not uh, that universities journalism are gender driven, uh, not gender driven, are agenda driven in the same way that. Journalism itself is agenda-driven now, more so than. Because uh, remember, when I say afflict the comfort, you know, afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted, I don't mean just so you can step on someone's neck. I mean so that you can elucidate truth, mm-hmm. right? And so much of the gotcha stuff isn't about elucidating truth; it's about getting someone. And you would afflict the comfortable to bring truth to light, right? Woodward and Bernstein again. I won't defend Bob Woodward's books today, but I'll defend his work at Watergate because he exposed something that needed to be exposed. It was a cancer in the White House and he exposed it. And that was a good thing for the country. Look at what's been going on now. Uh, I don't think you get that same kind of payoff in some of the journalism, quote unquote, that's getting done today.
0: You hinted at it a second ago. You went through a real crisis there in Wichita Falls that had really been building for years and years. Yeah. You're drinking.
1: Yeah. That's one of the... I say it's funny. It's funny now. I say that I I had two of the three vices of journalism. There are three main vices of journalism. There were when I was coming up. Coffee. Cigarettes. Cigarettes and booze. I don't drink coffee. Never have. So I never got coffee. Had cigarettes. Had booze. Kicked both. And... The cigarettes were harder than the booze. But
0: when did um, you kick the cigarettes?
1: I didn't kick the cigarettes until I came to work and focus on the family. Really? Yeah. I was already a Christian, I got so I got saved. Got sober got saved in 97. And then I still smoked for like 2 years after that. 2 years after that until God got my uh, like attention by starting my pocket on fi- my pocket started on fire in the newsroom in Palm Springs, California. I had a lighter in there, I had cigarettes in the other pocket, and the lighter just lit. Oh, my gosh. I threw the pack of cigarettes away, and that was the end (laughs) of my smoking (laughs) cigarettes.
0: But talk about your problem, because on Facebook and in person, you're really open and vulnerable about your years of alcohol, Mm -hmm. alcoholism and what it did to you as a person and how it destroyed relationships.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it was as journalism goes on, as I get more responsibility in newsrooms, as I get a bigger paycheck in newsrooms, those sessions of let's go out and have a couple of drinks to celebrate a victory become let's go out and have two dozen drinks to start celebrating a victory and then just continue to drink you know, to what I learned when I was in treatment in Alcoholics Anonymous to change the way I felt at its root. We talked earlier about some things that I grew up with that weren't ideal circumstances. I never processed those things very well. Mm-hmm. So I didn't like having to camp out on them. So I wanted to forget them in any way that I could. And a relatively cheap and easy way to do that was to drink. Unfortunately, there were people who got caught up in that just in terms of my behavior. I was an unfaithful husband. I was a not very reliable friend. For whatever reason, I could still work pretty hard and still do pretty well. I was a high-functioning alcoholic, but I was an emotional wreck. You know, the nights you'd laugh, you'd be at the bar, it'd all be fun, but you'd go home and you'd lie. I remember many times lying in bed, and I was like, is this all there is in life? right? That's all there is. You go out, you have fun when you're with people, but you can't stand being alone and you don't know what to do. And there were, um, I I was, I never did try to hurt myself, but I thought about it a lot. Mm. And there was a night when the drinking, you know, I, I was at a journalism convention in South Padre Island, Texas, working for the paper in Wichita Falls, as you said. My buddy, Jim Bishop, my mentor was there because his paper was there. And my paper who, that I was managing editor of in Wichita Falls won a whole bunch of awards, some for that very series I just, I, you know, I was talking about, about Wichita Falls in black and white. And what should have been the greatest night of my journalism career just was this terrible night of debauchery that led to, and this is, if anybody's listening who knows anything at all about Texas newspaper history, the Texas Associated Press Managing Editors Conference every year. The managing editor of the Dallas Morning News ran a poker game out of the hospitality suite at the hotel every year like that for 25, 30 years. I showed up there. I thought their booze was too cheap, so I brought my own bottle of whiskey. Smoking like a chimney, swearing like a sailor, causing all kinds of trouble. I actually was hitting on on a woman there whose husband was also at the table, it got so bad that the managing editor of the Dallas Morning News, who had held court at this poker table for a quarter of a century, picked up his cards and left. I drove him away. Wow.
0: Did and you I recognize knew. it at the time?
1: I went back to my hotel room, and that was when, as I say, I, I never... I never hurt myself. thought about it a bit various times. I remember going back to my hotel very clearly and I was like I used to always call people when I was like that. I think I'm going to hurt myself. That was just to get sympathy. But I was lying in my bed alone and I had that thought and I didn't want to call anybody. Hmm. And I got to sleep and the next day was the last drink I had. I flew back from South Padre Island to Wichita Falls, quit my job when I got back and went into rehab Mm -hmm. because I knew what scared me was I didn't reach out to say, hey, somebody rescue me. I was like, and I didn't know, I I didn't know what life would be like after that. And I knew I'd burned, I mean, i flamed out in front of everybody who was anybody in Texas journalism. I drove away a, a, a Texas journalism legend from his poker table. I knew I was, you know, I Mm. I was gonna get uh, in trouble, and I did. Instead of uh, getting fired, I quit and went into rehab. Mm. And uh, the last drink I had was at the uh, hotel bar in South Padre Island before we flew back to Wichita Falls.
0: Had you ever thought about going into rehab before that? Had friends confronted you? Yeah, I, I never had an intervention
1: per se. But I remember somebody, you know, I, people had suggested that I should do that, that it was getting out of control, that I wasn't, you know, fun anymore. <laughs> mm-hmm. I wasn't uh, the jovial drunk who didn't stick around as long as he used to. I went to a therapist, but I wouldn't go to an AA meeting. I was like, I was going to kick it myself. That lasted for about two months of white knuckling. And that's when I, when I finally went into rehab. That's what I learned. What makes you an alcoholic isn't how much you drink. It's why you drink. And I drank to change the way I felt. So even if you only have one drink and you're drinking for that, for a purpose Mm -hmm. like that, to change the way you feel, to get through the day to whatever, you have a problem. Mm -hmm. And that that helped me focus on that situation. And that was the first time. and, And I'll talk about, I'm not still in AA. I don't refer to myself as a recovering alcoholic, even though I've been sober 24 years, be 25 in April. I believe God healed me of my alcoholism. That said. That said, yeah. I don't believe I would have found Jesus were it not for AA. And I am the greatest supporter of AA that you could find because it was my first encounter with the idea that there was a power higher than me
0: did you go to rehab and then aa after you got out of rehab
1: one of the things that the rehab center i i was in did is part of the treatment was to go to aa meetings once a day so we all went as a group to the AA, AA, aa meetings and that was the first time that someone got up and talked about the aa language as a god of our own understanding and that was the first time I started thinking about those kinds of you know, questions um, of, of, of what that might you know, mean, that I wasn't, uh, I, I wasn't the be-all end-all, that there was something maybe bigger than me. I've said this a hundred times if I've said it once. If in that first meeting someone would have said Jesus to me, I would have said, see ya, because I wasn't ready. I was ready to get sober, but I wasn't ready to get religion. That would wait until I was unemployed, going to AA, got a job in Palm Springs, California. And then that's when I got saved, a few months after getting sober. Uh, you
0: saved. weren't ready for Jesus. Correct. Why? Did you grow up at all? mm parents?
1: Parents didn't go to church. I would...
0: What, uh, was, your, what was your experience with faith, religion, Jesus, etc.
1: None. I mean, I I would, I could not, when I got saved, I could not have articulated for you before that moment the difference between God and Jesus, like father, son. I couldn't have even articulated that much.
0: Hmm. I thought- Did you have bad experiences? No,
1: we just didn't, you know, it was interesting because we grew up, our house was kitty corner to the, the, the minister's, it was a pastorate house- for uh, the ministers of a, a Methodist church in town, we never went. You know, uh, Kenosha is a a largely uh, heavily Catholic community, so I went to, you know, church periodically to, to Mass with some girlfriends to kind of make them happy on holidays. But I didn't know what they were talking about. I didn't really listen to what was going on, and I didn't have a bad experience. I just had no experience. Mm. I had no frame of reference. So the reason I say, if someone would have said Jesus, I would have been like, that would have been a that would have been you know, you've been doing a lot of hiking, so that would have been like a 14-footer or you know, miler or, or whatever it is.
0: 14, 14er. 14er. That would M- have been 14. For those for those that don't know, they're the mountains in Colorado that are above 14,000 feet.
1: Right. That would have been a 14er. I was only ready for a seven, a sevener at that time, and that was okay. Stop drinking. It's because you're an alcoholic because of why you drink. Get control of that. Get your emotions right. Make amends to people do those things I said my dad was good at doing, apologize, you know, recognize that uh, there, there's something going on here that it's, it's not all about you. And I did that for a while, but then had a crisis moment in Palm Springs where um, I have no idea, Steve, I have no idea. If you're not terribly charismatic and you're listening, you may want to press pause because <laughs> I, um, I had met a girl uh, young woman um, in uh, in Palm Springs. I wasn't going to tell anybody about my alcoholic history. I was going to start fresh. Mm-hmm. I met this girl I was interested in, this young woman I was interested in, and just wanted to go out with her. She didn't want to go out with me. She kept trying to talk to me about God and Jesus. And I'm like, you know, no, I just want to date you. She didn't want to date me. So finally she said, nope, I don't want to date you. You're nice and all that but what you really need is jesus we're done even hanging out and that's when i went out i used to drink crown royal whiskey but i was i was such a uh, a lightweight i hated the taste of it so i i only drank to get drunk not to because i liked it so i, I would always cut it with coke so i buy top shelf whiskey i cut it with coke and i for some reason this was, this was a dumb move in retrospect i kept my favorite glass that I would, uh, that I would mix drinks in for some reason, even though I was sober for like four or five months when I moved to Palm Springs, I kept it. So I still had it. So I decided, you know what? This sobriety is not going to work. I got rejected by this girl. I'm going to get drunk. So I went out and I bought a bottle of Crown Royal whiskey and I bought some RC Cola because I thought it was cute to call it crown and crown. When I mixed it, (laughs) I bought a bag of ice because I was still too incapable of actually making ice in my freezer Uh,
0: (laughs) because I was still
1: I was not living the most stable life right bought the bag of ice got home pulled the glass out put the ice in the glass poured the whiskey over the ice put the coke to fill it up stuck my finger in it to stir it like I always did Mm -hmm. stirred it up Went to put my finger in my mouth like I had done probably 103,247 times in my life. And I could not put my finger in my mouth. Mm. I was physically unable to lick that mixture of whiskey and Royal Crown Cola off of my finger. And I sat down, freaked out. And then I said, OK, I'll just pick up the glass. I went to pick up the glass. My hand could not touch the glass. As it turns out, the um, young woman with whom I was enamored who, was, who told me, you don't need me, you need Jesus, had given me the name of someone from her church. Yeah. Had his phone number in my uh, wallet pocket in some pile of clothes somewhere. I picked it up and called him. Name is Marcus Osborne. Called Marcus up. He answered the phone and I told him what happened. And he said, do you want to come over? Never forget it. I said, no. I think that's why I probably should. (laughs) (laughs) I went over to Marcus's house and uh, he led me to the Lord. Wow. And every day since then has been perfect. (laughs) <laughs> not, but um yeah he le- he led me to the Lord uh, and I went to church, sat outside smoking cigarettes, like watching people go in, right, I went to the church that this young woman went to that Marcus went to, hanging out behind a garbage dumpster you know chain smoking cigarettes, and loud should I go in, should I not go in? I went in, and I broke like a dry twig during worship, mm. and uh what was it It was just this. I felt the presence of God. It was feeling the presence, this comforting presence, that it was the presence of God saying, you're okay. I love you. It's going to be okay. It's all right. There's a way forward. You don't have to try so hard. It's all going to be okay. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be okay. In, the, in that moment, just hearing these people so uh, um, enthusiastically worshipping God. And it's funny, the reason I brought up the charismatic thing is not only because I couldn't touch the glass, which, you know, could, you know, hit your theology in uh, some way or not, but the church was extremely charismatic to the point it's funny. Like like people would bray like donkeys in this church. It was great. So I got saved in a church where they brayed like donkeys. So nothing, I mean, you know, anything that came after that was like normal to me. And, you know, I, I settled in, in in my Christian walk into places where, yes, I do believe that God speaks to us. I do believe all those things, but I'm not, you know, that yeah. much into the prophetic. Uh, yeah. But that's what happened is I felt the presence of God and that was everything. And that changed everything. And, mm. and, and I went home from church that Sunday, picked up the glass suddenly, poured it out, poured the whiskey down the, down the drain. And uh, that was November 2nd of 19... 19- uh, Ninety-seven, which um, interestingly—that's my so so—that's my rebirth day, right? The day I became a Christian, I, I count that as a, as the yeah. day I became a Christian, even though I prayed the Sinner's Prayer a few days before that. Is November second, eleven two? My yeah. birthday is two eleven. Isn't God great? <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, that was um, and that was the start of a you know learning to walk it out, and I'll remember. I mean, I. I so that was 97 I, I, I went to work at focus I got hired at focus in 2000 and you were, you know you'll remember from from your days at focus the monthly chapel services and I remember the Christmas chapel. I started in, in September so the Christmas Chapel was only like three months after that and in the Christmas Chapel dr. Dobson was still running focus and he was praying for everybody and I just started crying because I had come from where I had been, and now I was getting paid to sit in a room with this, even I had heard of this man of God who was praying for me, us, and it was just such a totally different life than me lying in bed going, is this all there is? Now I knew there was a lot more to it than that. That wasn't all there was, and that changed everything. So I like to tell people, in sort of prefacing that story sometimes, I'll say, you know, I got saved, in a secular newspaper newsroom in Palm Springs, California at age 32. That's not exactly Saul's conversion to Paul, but it's pretty close. <laughs> Cuz <coughs> Palm Springs is a, is not a Christian place generally speaking obviously there are Christians there my church was in that area but Palm Springs is kind of a liberal bastion 32 not a lot of people getting saved you know as the statistics show the older you get the harder that is and newspapers are you know the only time I ever heard God in the newsroom I worked in was as the second part of uh, or the first part of everybody's second favorite swear word uh, that was the only <laughs> time I ever heard God and it was like okay and I you know, I've stumbled and fallen and tried to stumble forward and uh, but I've never looked back and that's been everything and it's been I have lived sober and saved now uh, longer uh, at least consciously than I did otherwise and that I mean I remember when I was when I was working at Focus to bring both halves of the stories together my hometown paper did a feature for me uh, on me in the religion paper because i was dr dobson's chief pr guy
0: okay yep.
1: picture of me on the cover of the religion section story about me all about what we've talked about here and a buddy of mine who i had fallen out of touch with said he saw the paper and he said to himself schneberger finally burned down a church that's what he thought when he saw my photograph on the cover of the religion page and that was when I called him up and said some things are different now you know I'm not the same guy that I was so yeah that's the um, and I say it jokingly the Saul Paul thing but for people who knew me then and know me now and didn't know me in between They thought I burnt down a church. A guy that I hung around with, that I partied with, thought that I'd finally burned down a church. That's not exactly, I mean, it's not certainly as serious as what Saul did, but kind of falls in the same ballpark, doesn't it?
0: (laughs) So you left Focus in, what, 2011, 2012?
1: 2011. 2011, I left the day that Jim Daly, president of Focus's book, it was his manifesto on public policy, called Refocus, Mm -hmm. came out. The reason I did that was because I felt like God. I started at Focus, working for Citizen Magazine. I ended up, over the course of the 12 years I was there, becoming uh, the vice president of communications, and. Um, I was the chief spokesperson for the organization. And one of the main things that we had to do, that I had to do, was when Dr. Dobson left Focus and Jim took over Focus, nobody knew who the heck Jim Daly was and James Dobson was a household name. I had to get Jim on the map. Focus was already on the map, but their new leadership needed to be on the map. So we organized, we focused, no pun intended on getting Jim's name out there, creating opportunities for him, which included a cover story in Christianity Today. We did things to uh, show that um, while, as I put it then, Jim was not the same, he's a different generation than Dr. Dobson. Dr. Dobson was a PhD, Jim was a guy who was just raising his family like everybody else that he's talking to, but he still brought godly wisdom just from a different perspective. And when that book came out, it felt to me like that was my mandate having been completed. Jim had written his book. It had come out about the way he thought we should engage public policy, coming out of Dr. Dobson's large and justifiably large shadow. It was time to go back to being a marriage and parenting ministry. And while I was married at the time, I did not have any children. And I was like, okay. I don't have any first-hand experience in what this organization now is going to really going to have to focus on doubling down on in the press. So I said, you know, Dr. Dobson used to talk about it all the time. He always wanted to get to well done, good and faithful servant territory. And I thought, I felt like that's where God had brought me, that I had been faithful with what I could do. And it was time for somebody else to step into that position that I had as head of communications, who had a family who had kids, who knew what that was about, who knew what that was like, who could speak authoritatively about that. So I ran away to Hollywood and marketed faith-based movies. (laughs) I didn't run away. I took a job in Hollywood to market faith-based films.
0: You've talked about a number of times that within the journalism industry, PR people are looked down upon.
1: Absolutely. I did it myself when I was there.
0: Why did you make that move? First off, where does that come from? And why did you make that move?
1: It happened while I was at Focus. And in Citizen Magazine, I was a writer. So I wrote stories for Citizen Magazine, public policy publication for Focus, no longer active. But while I was there doing that, it it became, I was, as a Christian, I wanted to help Christians or to help journalists understand Christianity, Mm. to help journalists understand why focus on the family was doing what it was doing, Mm -hmm. to help them understand not only the positions that focus on the family took on policy issues, but also the fact that 97% of blood, sweat, toil, tears, money, donations, you know, air was spent not on public policy, even though that got all the attention. That was part of my mandate was to flip the script Focus was known so much because of Dr. Dobson's passion and effectiveness in public policy as a public policy place when in fact 97% of what we did was about marriage and parenting and family and standing boldly for Christ. And so I saw that opportunity to educate journalists about what Focus was really about, knowing from my own perspective that I didn't have the greatest view of Christians. I didn't know anything about them. I was in newsrooms. I know what they talked about. And no, I don't think... Never once, never once in my journalism career did we sit around and go, psst, let's have, a, let's have a, we hate Christians meeting. We just, journalists just don't know a lot about that stuff, by and large, the overwhelming majority. Going into public relations and Focus on the Family gave me the opportunity to educate Christian, I mean, journalists about what Christianity was about, what Focus on the, on the Family specifically was doing in the culture And because I had been one of them, I had been a secular journalist before I knew what a secular journalist was, I knew I could speak their language. And that would make Mm. me, I thought, effective at doing it. And as it turned out, it did make me pretty effective at doing it.
0: You developed some really good relationships during those years. I remember you telling me about some of the relationships that you developed with journalists.
1: When I left Focus to go work for Hollywood, I sent... An email off to a lot of those contacts. One of them was Sean Hannity, who Dr. Dobson always went on Sean's show, and um, you know Sean said very complimentary, kind things about the way that the guests I brought to him, the you know the work that Focus had done. You know there was another guy named Dan Gilgoff. Dan Gilgoff wrote a a, a book. I forget the title of it now, but it wasn't. It, it was on the, the quote-unquote Christian right and its inf- and its power and its influence. And it wasn't an unfair book. It was just a, a, a you know what a secular guy would write about that. But I got a I got the the kindest, most heartfelt email from Dan Gilgoff, not a Christian, who had had some run-ins with Dr. Dobson, who I had you know committed my my largest faux pas. As a uh, as a PR person at Focus, uh, on a story that Dan did, and Dan, you know, was what Dan saw, what I saw, and what Dan Gilgoff wrote me is that he saw a Christian who wasn't hypocritical. He saw me as someone who, like, when I made a mistake, I said, "Yep, I made a mistake," and he said that I did. After years of sort of animosity between Focus and the press, I had ushered in a new era. For the organization with the press. Ooh. From a guy who was writing for US News and World Report. Hmm. That meant a lot to me. Even more than what Sean said, because Sean's, you know, Sean conservative, you know, agreed with what Focus did in policy positions more certainly than Dan Gilgoff did. That meant everything to me. That he saw in me what I hoped I was as a Christian. And that was someone who was certainly wasn't perfect, but could as I talked about my dad earlier, could acknowledge when I wasn't perfect and was committed to doing something better the next time around.
0: So hmm. You left Hollywood, Southern California, and you moved back home. What was the impetus behind that?
1: Um, you know, life... Your listeners know this. Life isn't perfect. People who live life Humans aren't perfect, and Christian humans aren't perfect. And um, that young woman, I never squared the circle on uh, the story of the young woman who introduced me to Christ in Palm Springs, we got married. We, we got married, and um, she was married to me all during my focus on the family tenure, and we went uh, moved out to uh, Hollywood together. But we you know, had, I'm not gonna you know, yeah. tell tales out of school here, but we had struggles that married couples have. And um, it got to the point that um, the marriage was not salvageable despite attempts to do so. Good faith attempts on both parts. So before I explain what brought me back home, I'll say this about my former wife. We remain friendly. Um,
0: You've introduced me to her for a potential project.
1: Absolutely, we, w- we're friendly and we have, you know, we, we have a theme going here. We have exchanged forgivenesses for the way that we did not treat each other in the best, as our vows indicated that we would treat each other. We did not do that as well as we should have. Um, we tried and it did not work. Ultimately, after 17 years, we split. About the time that that was unraveling, that our marriage was becoming untenable, I reconnected with someone I knew from my hometown in college. Now, it's important to say that this person was not someone I dated in college. This was my pre-Christian days, and I dated a few people in college. (laughs) but this woman was not one of them. And I, I have had a habit, um, as you well know, because you called me out on it this morning, because I, I was all excited about the Bucks winning, and you called me out on it, and I've seen you on Facebook ripping on the coach, and you know, every time I see it, you're right. <laughs> I can tend to be a bit of a sharer on Facebook, and I can share from the, uh, from the solar plexus, not even from the heart, I'm just from the gut, right? Um, but over the years, Facebook had been, a great way for me to reconnect with people I had known throughout my life, and a lot of times it gave me that opportunity to apologize for the way that I had treated people mm-hmm. poorly before Christ, mm-hmm. and it, and I developed friendships out of that, and it was beautiful. So periodically, uh, when I you know I, I reconnected with dozens of people through the years, and you know it would be like I'd be bored on a on a, on a on a Saturday or something, and I'd, I wonder, I wonder whatever happened to, to Ed Smith. Who I worked with in in Victoria, Texas. let's see if Ed Smith's on Facebook. Sure enough, he was, and we got down. Hey Ed, how you doing? Well, yeah, you know, I'm a Christian. Right? Whatever. We, yeah. I looked up this young woman who was the first person I ever mentored, I ever tried to mentor in my life. You hear me talk earlier here about the importance of Jim Bishop mentoring me. And I tried to mentor someone when I was editor of my college paper at Parkside in Kenosha. We recruited the next seasons journalist for the student paper from high schools in the area. So I, rec- I-, I recruited this young woman along with another uh, three or four people to come write for the paper and she was good. She was so good that I promoted, I promoted her to be an editor after three months. Her name was Kelly McKissick and so much Even though I was only three years of journalism experience ahead of her and they were all collegiate or happenings magazine writing TV reviews, for some reason I thought I had something to offer as a mentor, as a writer, and she learned a little bit from me and she got better. And when I graduated, even in my unsaved, not always, in fact, very often thinking only of myself, I had poured into her as a journalist, I wanted to encourage her, so when I, one thing that. You probably know about me that nobody else, I'm a pen snob. Right? This, is a, this is a Mont Blanc right here. Then on it, I've written mightier because the pen's mightier than the sword. And I have, a, I have like 15 right, sort of higher-end kind of pens. And that started in college before I had the money to buy higher-end pens. So I had this cross pen that I carried around. And when, when I graduated, I gave the pen to Kelly. Again, we were just friends. I was just her mentor. But she learned a lot and she was good. And I loved journalism and I, I was going to embark on a journalism career. And, and she was she was good and she was going to be the future of journalism. And I was thrilled about that. So I gave her my pen on the day that I graduated. Tried to encourage her. We hugged goodbye. I, I graduated. She stayed on. I didn't, 30 years, didn't really even think about her. Yeah. On a Saturday in 2016, I was like, I wonder what, when my marriage was falling apart, I wonder what Kelly McKissick's up to. Searched on Facebook, found her, sent her a message. I still remember what it says. Could it be? Parkside's one-time ace journalist Kelly McKissick? No fair. You haven't aged since the Ranger days. Hope you're well. Within It was in Messenger on Facebook before it was Messenger. Within 13 minutes, she responded and said, oh my gosh, Gary, oh my gosh, how are you doing? Yeah. She was in PR. She had gone on and she had continued. She worked in journalism for a while and she got gone into PR too. And over the course of just a couple of weeks, we discovered that we had a friendship and we discovered that there was something more than that there. And so I moved back home because she never moved away from home. I moved back home in 2016 in the late spring, early summer of 2016 to marry her, which I did in 2017. and um, She's awesome. And she is. uh, Kelly is all those things. You know, the thing I didn't say about when I left Focus because I didn't have kids and I didn't think I was qualified to talk about that now that the Focus was off policy so much and we were telling reporters now more focused than ever, we're a marriage and parenting organization. I didn't have kids, I wasn't a parent, so I didn't think I could, you know, I should uh, be doing that. But there was a hole in my heart because I always wanted kids, Mm. always wanted them. Mm. And my former wife never wanted to have kids and okay, that, you know, know, what do you do? You 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 don't want kids, I'm gonna get divorced. No, we stayed together, we tried to make it work that never happened but Kelly was going through a divorce at the time herself not a Christian surprised to hear I was but intrigued and she had two kids two Mm -hmm. teenagers and lo and behold that desire of my heart that God had planted I believe has gotten fulfilled and I have repented for those things I talk, that, I, that, I've, uh, that my former wife and I had to talk to each other about and confess and apologize for. Um, I've worked with my pastor, and I've uh, God and I have done business on those things. and you know, as far as East is from the West.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And um, the beautiful thing. Kelly and I were going to get married. In the spring of 2017, at the university where we met, we were going to get get married in a sort of a secular ceremony. But Kelly had been coming to church with me since I moved back home. She started asking questions when I was still in Hollywood about it before I moved back home. And I could tell. I don't know how you tell these things, but I could tell. You've probably been in the situation before yourself with some people. You can just tell. You can see God's handprint on them. I could tell God's fingerprints were on her and that she was interested and she would. And three months before we were supposed to get married in the secular ceremony, she had come to church with me was so moved by the invitation at the end of church to accept Christ, she walked down there. I never pressured her once. I never. I asked her all her questions, but I never said anything. I knew I wasn't going to be unequally yoked because I knew, I just knew God, I knew. She got saved, we postponed our wedding, we got married in our church before God. He's blessed that union and blessed the desire of my heart. I'm now a stepfather to two incredible kids incredible kids and here's how you know it's fun and you know this here's how dumb i was despite working at focus on the family i'm like teenagers that's going to be easy <laughs> because i remember being a teenager i don't remember being five i wouldn't know how to you know step parent a five-year-old teenagers can be easy teenagers as you know aren't easy but incredibly rewarding and it has brought my life full circle. Now, I find it so funny. And this is the way God works. All those years at Focus, 12 years where I didn't have kids, and I you know, was hearing all this marriage and parenting advice on the radio program, and then Dr. Dobson talking, and Jim talking, and the people who led those ministries, and just being around it by osmosis.
0: Same. Totally. Without question.
1: Now, step parenting, I remember those things. It's like that was the training ground. I didn't realize that God had me in a training ground. Mm-hmm. And it's been beautiful, the things that I've learned that I'm able to share with Kelly as we go through those kinds of things. So, yeah, it's been, um, you know, some people have asked, you know, well, my gosh, you reconnected in February of 2016. You moved back home just a few months later, and then you got married. And, and one thing that Hollywood taught me, Steve, one thing that Hollywood taught me, all movies, right, In promoting films in Hollywood for three years, all movies have three acts, right? And all the best action happens in the third act. First Mm -hmm. act sets it up. Second act, there's conflict. In the third act, the conflict is resolved. There's a crisis. The hero comes back. The conflict is resolved. There's a happy ending. And I, I was 50, I was 51 years old in 2016. I'm not very good at math. I'm a word guy, but I, I know enough to do simple division and average life expectancies and all. At 51, that was about the start of my third act. And I saw this was my chance to seize the happiness that my heart always wanted and never had. And I wasn't going to, you know, I wasn't going to wait. Mm-hmm. Why wait? What good would it? I knew what I wanted to do, And I saw the happiness train, the fulfillment train, the this is what I was created for. This is what was poured into me. This is what God created me to be. God, it took me a long time, man, to come to the place where I realized God did indeed create me in part to be a parent, a step parent in this case, but a parent. And I seized it Mm -hmm. and, you know, have never looked back just as I've never looked back on my decision to follow Jesus from 1997.
0: In moving back, you didn't move back for a job, but you started your own business. Talk about that. Talk about your book, Bite the Dog. Yeah. The subtitle is Build a PR Strategy to Make News That Matters.
1: Yes. Um, Yeah, I moved. I I started my Because I
0: guarantee you there are going to be listeners that are going to be, they like your story. They like where you've gone. They like some of the things that you've said, and they could use you, and they could use your services.
1: Well that's very kind of you to say, Um, so so thank you for that, seriously. I decided I wanted to give it a go myself. To your point, I had made good relationships, good relationships with reporters in both secular press and Christian press, and I was like, okay, if I'm going to start a business, you know. Maybe I can start it, and and it's in public relations, so you don't have to be, it's not just about Hollywood. I can represent people all over the country doing all kinds of things. Not all of my clients are Christians. Not all of them are ministries, but some of them are. And um, I decided that I was going to put into practice for myself because one of the things in Hollywood, Hollywood's all about everything goes in seven-day cycles. It's all release. Everybody focuses on the release numbers and they move on to the next seven days. And while it was rewarding to say, hey, we opened up the movie that we, uh, we, we promoted the movie at the firm I worked for, faith-based firm I worked for in film marketing, uh, we The Man of Steel, one of the movies that we worked on. People would ask me, well, why would a Christian firm work on a superhero movie? I'm like... Superman is a story of an otherworldly father who sends his only son to earth to save mankind. I read that in a book somewhere, <laughs> right? I mean, it's, it's, the, it's, it's got Christ, you know, metaphors all over the place. So all the things that I had learned in both journalism, what it's like being a reporter, what reporters look for, what interests them, how they want to give something fresh, new, exciting to their their uh, readers, listeners, viewers. What Sean Hannity told me, you've always brought me good guests. I wanted to bring good guests to people. Starting my own company was a way to do that. Uh, It didn't have to be solely in Hollywood, but I still do some work for Hollywood. So I launched Roar. The name came from a painting I saw that was painted during a worship service that I attended in Los Angeles. I bought that painting from the artist, the original, it hangs in my uh, home Mm. office. Of the lion roaring, just this, epic roar that looks like it's blowing somebody's hair back. And that's the point that, that I want to make with my company and that is sometimes you got to speak loud enough, your truth, your message to blow the other guy's hair back a little bit. That's okay. So, um, we, I founded Roar. That was five years ago and you know, I've beaten the odds, right? The new businesses fail in the first three years, I'm going on year six and we're doing better than we've ever done and we have a we have a have a client roster of uh, a lot of different kinds of people different types of people it's uh, and we're getting you know we're helping them be heard that's the motto for my brand promise be heard and that's what we're helping people accomplish you have a message articulate what's in their heart to change hearts that's what i want to help people do that's what we've been able to help people do and that comes from knowing what journalism is about, knowing what journalists look for, knowing how to speak to them, and then also knowing, from a public relations perspective, how to package something in the right way to attract attention. How to weather storms. Good grief, at Focus on the Family, we had a few storms, didn't we? Oh,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> we weathered some storms, um, but, so I help clients do that. And having that experience, yes, you're, as you indicated earlier, Old journalist friends of mine say I crossed to the dark side because I went into public relations. Well, okay, well, I think what that allows me to do is I've seen how both sides of the of the bread are buttered, and I know how to speak to journalists, and I know what they're looking for, and I know what companies, speakers, authors, businesses, ministries, I know how to help them put their best rhetorical foot forward in getting... Attention for themselves. And that's what it is. Public relations is not rocket science and it's not dumb luck. It's simply leveraging expectations and opportunities in a way that capitalizes on what's going on in the media and what's going on in the marketplace of ideas to float all boats and get your message heard.
0: The website is weroar.la mm-hmm. to learn more information. Gary, let's get to rapid fire questions.
1: Oh boy, I didn't know this was coming. Okay.
0: Hey, everyone. Before we get to the rapid-fire segment, I wanted to talk about a way that you, as a listener, can support the show and the growth of Holy Smokes by becoming a monthly supporter at patreon.com slash holysmokes. Patreon is a support platform, and for as little as $5 a month, you can get bonuses like ad-free versions of these podcast episodes holy smoke swag like t-shirts and more that's patreon.com holy smokes we're looking to get 40 patreon supporters at an average of 10 dollars a month and once we hit that we'll be able to pay for all the costs for hosting editing writing posting I won't be paying for that out of my pocket or through the volunteering of my own personal time. And as we grow that number to 100 and 150, 200 patrons, we'll be able to do two shows a week, hire a part-time assistant and web developer, record on location and around the world and more. I want to visit groups and get those stories from so many of you listeners that I hear from. I want to go to Seattle and I want to go to Dallas and I want to go to Charleston, South Carolina, and I want to go to Kentucky and Chicago and Phoenix, Atlanta, DC, Charlotte, back to Southern California and more. We want to help grow your groups and plant new ones for those of you in areas without active groups. So can you help us out? Become a regular supporter at patreon.com slash holysmokes. There's a link in the show notes. That's patreon.com slash holysmokes. Or if you want to make a one-time tax deductible gift, go to paypal.me slash club. That's paypal.me slash holysmokes club. And both of those links are in the show notes. Thanks. Rapid fire! fire <laughs> how's that stick treating you
1: it's good oh, this is fabulous as
0: i told a you a good celebratory stick
1: as i told you before we were uh on air here um it's like smoking nothing but smoking the greatest thing you've ever smoked it's, there, there's no after i mean it's just this this relaxing yeah it's which is kind of bad for a pr guy you don't want to be relaxed too much you want to be you know i want to blow somebody's hair back but i'm just like sitting back so it's good
0: when did you first try cigars or pipe?
1: First cigar I ever smoked. Well, okay. Are we counting the Swisher Sweets years in college? <laughs> that that, count, that counted for me. Okay. I mean, That's, that was...
0: I, I counted that as, my, as really one my start, quote unquote.
1: Yeah. I mean, that was just trying to be cool and that wasn't a big deal. But th- there was a guy, actually, um, at the paper in Wichita Falls who our smoking area was out. There was a an abandoned railroad track behind the office we would go outside and smoke cigarettes and he would go out and he didn't smoke cigarettes but he smoked cigars and he gave me one one night and I was like dang that's kind of nice and and what I liked about it was the same thing I liked about playing softball uh, in my 20s is that there was an hour of softball (laughs) and then there was four hours of social time social time And a cigar, unlike a cigarette where you're just sucking it down in 10 minutes and you can go back to work and edit more copy, you can sort of sit down, you can unfurl the stories you and I have been doing here, as you and I have done privately many times. And that's what I liked about it is that it was the end of the day and he had a cigar and we were out there smoking and the workday was done, the sun was going down and we just, you know, shot the bowl for an hour and it was fabulous and that was uh, my introduction to true cigar smoking and it's been part of me ever since.
0: Have you ever done pipe?
1: No, I'm not.
0: Favorite cigar.
1: It's funny um, you uh, had, had uh, offered one as a potential to me. It is. I'm going to pull it out here. The Oliva. Yeah, the Oliva Serie V is my uh, favorite. What I loved about it is, one of my clients got like a he won a box at a raffle, so he just gave me the box. I'm like, oh great, because he smokes, but he had he had so many of them, he gave me a box of them, and. It looks like it would be. I, I'm not a. And if I'm jumping ahead on questions, I apologize. I'm not a robust guy. I like them a little lighter. And it looks like it would be robust, but it's not that um, yeah. that robust. It's a bit more mild, a bit more savory, and that's my go-to. And it's big. I mean, I I talk with my hands, and there's something gloriously theatrical about being able to have a conversation to wave around a big 50 gauge cigar. So. <laughs>
0: most expensive cigar you've ever smoked
1: good question i don't know what these go for um it it probably would be some variety of uh a cuban it it, it may be uh cohiba Uh, again one of the things i was telling you when you offered this one to me i haven't smoked one of these since i got a box of them um from uh, a film producer or uh in in hollywood uh, some sort of Cuban is probably, uh, I don't know which one it was, but it may yeah. indeed be this Cohiba. I don't know.
0: Best dollar for dollar cigar you've ever smoked. That, and my brother is a
1: big, big fan of this. And we, when he and I get together and smoke, he's, he'll always pull us out. The Brick House Mighty Mighty.
0: Brick House.
1: The Brick House Mighty Mighty is like, you know, single digit uh, um, uh, price tag, and it's a good good draw and it's a good long um, opportunity to unfurl some conversation
0: your go-to place to get smokes
1: cigars.com
0: you're celebrating what's your splurge cigar
1: i'm having it right now (laughs) i didn't have to splurge because you did you gave it to me
0: favorite liquid pairing with your smoke
1: Diet Mountain Dew. Um, being uh, someone who was 24 years uh, sober, I, I, I am not sober from caffeine. And while I didn't pick up coffee as a journalist, by golly, I picked up caffeine. So,
0: Most interesting person you've ever met through cigars?
1: Most interesting person I've ever met through cigars? That's interesting, working at Hollywood. That, um, probably would be the film producer I was talking about, Mark Burnett, who is the producer of Survivor, Shark Tank, all he's the most successful reality TV producer of all time. When I was in Hollywood, I did uh, work on a couple of things for him. One of which was the um, Bible miniseries, and he and his wife Roma Downey put out. Roma paid me the greatest compliment, uncigar-related. I wrote some speeches for her, and she said, "You write like an Irish angel." Since so she played, she's Irish, <laughs> and she played uh, "Untouched by an Angel." But yeah, Mark and I enjoyed a cigar or two. So,
0: most memorable cigar experience?
1: Mm, that's easy. Alec Baldwin's Cigar Club in New York. Do you know Kevin McCullough? Yeah. And then you know of, if you don't know, uh, Stephen Baldwin, yep. Alec Baldwin's little brother. Well, so Kevin and Stephen Baldwin were radio partners. And I was in New York and I was visiting Kevin and Kevin took me out to you know for cigars. And he got us into, through Stephen, Alec Baldwin's, this cigar, I don't even remember what it's called, but it's like this, I mean... There are so many fans in the ceiling of that place, Steve, that you can't even tell anybody smoking. And Al Sharpton was in the corner, puffing on one. I mean there was there were there was just there was famous people all over the place. And they, they you know, these these women came out and, you know, mini skirts and lit your cigar with wood and it was just it was just a fabulous, fabulous experience. Um, you know, to feel like, yeah. I could, you know, like people who pay $50,000 a year or whatever to, uh, you know, be members of a a Tony Cigar Club in Manhattan.
0: This is a question I've been looking forward to Uh since I put it in the list.
1: Who's my favorite podcaster? No. No, okay.
0: Marvel or DC? You're a big superhero guy. Right.
1: You know, Marvel. Marvel. Why? Marvel was, when I... My comic book moorings are Marvel, because comic books, Marvel was, right, the comic book house that was real. They didn't have Metropolis and Gotham City. They had New York. Spider-Man lived in New York, and they had problems. They weren't, I mean, come on, Superman. They had to dream up Kryptonite for him to have a problem. So the comic books of my youth, they were perhaps a little too serious there were wise-cracking superheroes in Marvel, from Spider-Man to the Thing in the Fantastic Four. Uh, still upset they haven't made a good movie about that yet. Hopefully now that Marvel owns it, they'll be able to do it. All of that said, so Marvel for sure, I think what they've done with uh, in the movies has been remarkable. Robert Downey Jr. Uh, as Iron Man was the key to starting all that off. They still bring humor to it, but it's not you know goofy humor. Uh, That said, the the stuff that Zack Snyder did with uh, Man of Steel, um, his version of Justice League on on HBO Max was excellent. That was so good. There's there's a place for both, and I think, you know, depending on like what kind of cigar do you want? Do you want something that's a little peppery, a little nutty? You want something that's a little bit more funny and, and, and humorous and bombastic? Marvel's your place to go. You want something that's a little bit more serious, a little bit more almost realistic? There was something realistic about. You believed Batman could really be Batman in some of the stuff that DC's done with Christian Bale and then with Affleck uh, that Snyder did. So the answer to that question is both.
0: <laughs> favorite superhero?
1: Favorite you superhero. You had to choose one. They had to choose one. Favorite superhero will always be Superman because of the 1978 movie with Christopher Reeve. The slogan for that poster was, you will believe a man can fly. I was 12, 13 years old, and I saw that movie with 1978 special effects, and I believed a man could fly. It was fantastic. I still watch it at least once a year.
0: Star Wars or Star Trek?
1: And here's where people turn the podcast off. I don't, I'm not a big fan of either. Okay. If I had to pick one, Star Wars was big when I was, in, in, again, Kid. 12. I saw them all. Didn't love them that much. Didn't really. I wasn't a huge Star Trek guy. The reboots of Star Trek, uh, I've liked, okay. So if I had, if I, you yeah. know, if you're gonna force me, I'd say Star Trek.
0: Dogs, cats, neither or both.
1: Huge cat guy, um, and now. <laughs> <laughs> no, my stepdaughter has a dog who's come to live with us for the last year and a half. And I don't know that we would have gotten through as well as we did last year of COVID without that dog. And, mm-hmm. the, you know, she's nutty. She's not a big cuddler. She's not any of those things. But there's just something about her infectious enthusiasm. And during the day when Kelly and I are working, Kelly's still working from home. If I'm working from home. We'll get up and talk to each other at some point. The dog will come out of the bedroom where it sleeps because Alyssa, my stepdaughter, is at work. Dog's bored. Dog's sleeping. She hears voices. Out of the room, she comes with a tennis ball in her mouth going, will someone bounce this for me? (laughs) So there's something about, you know, uh, having a dog. I'm surprised that my heart leaps Mm -hmm. at dogs now.
0: Favorite one to three books not titled The Holy Bible?
1: Well, darn it, I was going to give you three different uh, translations I like. Um, the favorite book I've read in recent years, and I tend to be a, an of-the-moment favorite book guy, so uh, the favorite one I've read in the last few years is a Babe Ruth biography called The Big Fella by Jane Levy. And um, what it does is it, it it recounts in the late 20s how Ruth and Lou Gehrig barnstormed the country playing exhibition games. And what I liked about it, in addition to just being a baseball fan, and there's great nuggets in there, is it talks about how Ruth's manager, who set these games up, was kind of the father of modern day public relations and that he built hype around these things. He made, you know, talking about what makes good public relations, leveraging expectations and opportunities, opportunities for Babe Ruth to be in, you know, Hoboken, and he's playing baseball at some, you know, uh, you know, somebody's park, and he's and he's you know talking to people, interacting with fans. It was uh, it was fascinating how he made far more money that summer do or that fall doing that than he ever made um, per season playing baseball. So that that's up there uh, in in my current state. I'm reading right now; it's exhaustive uh, a Churchill biography called "Walking with Destiny" by Andrew Morton. And it's like 1,200 pages, so it's like I'm not even through, I, I'm not even to World War II yet, so I keep stopping and putting it down so I can, like, like it's not the kind of book you, you bring on a plane, so when I flew here, it's like <laughs> I just brought some pulpy novel with me for that. Uh, but that is an excellent, uh, really great insights into Churchill's character, especially his relationship with his parents and how that shaped him and how he overcame some pretty traumatic things that would have, what he overcame in his childhood with the kind of, one might say, mental illness of his dad and his mom was distant, explains exactly, I can't wait to read about the World War II years because it shows how he could have persevered through that. And then, uh, of course, my all-time favorite book, of um, The Moment, is Bite the Dog. <laughs> um, uh, uh, my book on, uh, my, my manifesto on public relations build a PR strategy to make news that matters. Uh, available where all good books are sold, and even some not so good books. And uh, soon there will be, perhaps even more of a favorite of mine, um, uh, a book I co-wrote with my best friend since college on the films of Frank Sinatra, called uh, Frank Sinatra on the Big Screen. The the, the singer is actor and filmmaker is coming out from McFarland, publishers by m- me and my friend, James L. Nyber. And it's a film-by-film film analysis of Frank Sinatra as an uh, uh, actor and producer. And it's a, it's a fascinating story because he, he comes out of being the voice, the singer. Right? He's, in his first movie roles, he's the boy singer in musical interludes and in films. And uh, he's this naive waif and he gets typecast and he wants so hard to break out of it. So he gets the role when his career is at the absolute nadir. And he gets the role uh, in From Here to Eternity and wins an Oscar. And then, boom, he's in demand. And for the next 10 years in the 50s, from about 53 to 61, drama, comedy, musical, untouchable, Pal Joey, his best movie in my estimation, where he just plays this ne'er-do-well um, singer, and he's, just, he's in such command of the screen. And then, after he does all that... And he breaks, so he gets typecast by Hollywood, wants to break out, breaks out, and then goes, okay, I proved my point. His la- Seven of his last eight roles were as either world-weary, private eyes, or cops. He just played one-note characters. He was good, but it wasn't anything great. Fascinating career trajectory of a guy who wanted to break th- free from typecasting, did, and then just didn't care anymore, really, after he proved his point. <laughs> Loved that about him. That comes out this fall from McFarland.
0: And you guys have some other films, I mean, some other books yes. about films <laughs> in the works. We've got contracts for, so
1: like, as as Jim and I will, you know, chat, it will be like, hey, wouldn't it be fun if we did, and it's hard to do, because he's written 30 books. The Bond book will be his 29th or 30th. And, um, you know, he's got uh, silent film comedians and silent film guys and Clark Gable and, he just did one on Judy Garland, and he's just got all this. But for people who are still alive, hard to do because you can't do a you know a, like a synopsis of here's their whole career. So the Bond movies is our next one that we're going to do, um, and the James Bond films. That one is a it, it, there's a good stopping point because this is Daniel Craig's last one, No Time to Die, and it, it'll go on, but it'll be different. So that's a you know from Sean. So it's our working title is. Uh, Um, the James Bond films from Connery to Craig. That uh, we're gonna start writing here in the next couple of months. And then we've got contracts for the good Burt Reynolds movies, not those straight to video ones. uh, which is, uh,
0: he's a... Is pers- that going to be the title of the book? The good no, Burt Reynolds it's, films? No, it's, it's like the, <laughs> the,
1: the, the essential Burt Reynolds or something like that. And then we're going to do, because Robert Redford's announced his retirement, we're going to do a film-by-film a film study of Robert Redford's movies too. So what, you know, my friend Jim, James L. Nyber, the author, um, uh, has really pioneered this kind of format where he does deep dives film-by-film film from Jerry Lewis. Um, he's still, to this day, Jim is the world's foremost uh, authority on Jerry Lewis's movies. He gets asked to do uh, DVD uh, extra commentaries all the time on not just Lewis, but on a, on a bunch of, of, of sort of uh, classic Hollywood, uh, both types and tropes. So that's gonna be fun to kind of go through, as it was with Sinatra, to go through Bond, the Good Burt, and all of Redford. and. Just to put a bow on the package of this whole conversation we've had, the Sinatra book, I don't even know if you know this, the Sinatra book was an idea I had because he wrote his first book when we were in college. And I had the idea in the early 90s to do this book, and I got a contract for it from the publisher, McFarland, who's publishing the book in the next couple of months. And because of where I was in my life, right? Mm-hmm. Drunk, you know, just not capable of doing it i just didn't finish it i just didn't do it it languished for more than 20 years and when i moved back home he's like you know what let's revisit that i bet i can get that published he called his publisher they bought the idea in a heartbeat and um, now 20 some years in the making that book will be out in the next couple of <laughs> months, which is an awesome again that's cool that is uh, part of what i believe Coming god created me to be full circle right and that's another example of that
0: if you could live anywhere where would that be
1: I'm living it. I'm back home. Thomas Wolfe was wrong. He can't go home again.
0: What's your greatest strength and what's your greatest weakness?
1: Greatest weakness is my uh, Interesting in how I went to weakness first. Uh, answer the, the, the toughest question first, good PR strategy. My greatest weakness is, is um, overly emotional, can uh, be fatalistic. Um, um, as evidenced by the bucks, the season's over. That's the sort of funny way it shows up, Um, you know. God did a lot of things when I got saved, took away um, alcoholism like that, Mm -hmm. gone. Mm -hmm. Never, never do I feel like I wanna drink. There are days I remember why I drank, but I never wanna have one. I could have one, in fact, because I don't call myself, I don't, I, I believe God cured me of alcoholism. I could, if I ever liked the taste of alcohol, I was never a burger and beer guy, so I could do that, but just why bother? I just, Mm -hmm. I I don't want to do it. So, um, Mm. my greatest strength, I think my greatest strength is that I know, (laughs) I know the zip code of my weaknesses. Mm. I know where they lie. I know where they fall. I know where my blind spots aren't all that blind to me anymore. So I don't have them mastered. I still fall prey to them, right? We all sin; all have fallen short. I still fall short, but I kind of know where they're grouped. And I was just having a conversation on a podcast I co-host with uh, just yesterday. I did it before I left, and we were talking about like bosses who are jerks and um, how to give like feedback to people in a way that you're not a jerk. And I and I thought about for the last. At some point I stopped wanting evaluations of my work and of me to be about everything I do right because I kind of know what I do right. Tell me the things that I'm not doing right. Tell me how I can get better. Don't, and then don't just point them out. Don't just say you do this wrong, but point out, you know, maybe you'd want to, you know, Kelly's great uh, you know, for me in that regard. So I think my greatest strength is knowing the, the zip code of my weaknesses. I may mm. not uh, get the, the, the city right and put the pin in the right spot in the map all the time, but I, I know how to get the mail there.
0: <laughs> Who's the first person you think of when you hear the word successful? My dad. Why?
1: he lived a, he lived a long life that got better till the end. Mm. He worked on relationships till the end. He, I talked about how he knew how to, how to forgive people. He knew how to, how to ask for forgiveness and give forgiveness. My brother and I went to see him in January of last year before the pandemic. And my brother had a bad moment. He can also be a little fatalistic sometimes. And he had some words with my dad and he felt really bad about it. And they were alone together in the house uh, and my brother apologized to my dad he said, and he said dad I'm so sorry sometimes I just say the wrong thing and I'm just I get so angry and I get so and my dad laughed and said stand in line it's been the story of my life. He was working on that till the day he died. And He had the
0: biggest smile. He did. He had the just the most vibrant bright, light-up-the-room smile.
1: Yeah. For his eulogy, which I gave as we're recording this less than a week ago, um, I did 93 things I wanted people to know about my dad since he died at 93. And one of them was, and that was one of the, I, I did funny things like he liked rye toast, you know, things that were stupid. And then I did serious things. And, and one of the serious things, because I wanted to break up the moments I might cry And when I said this, I cried, and that was exactly what you said, his smile. It it could light up a room the way a floodlight could light up a closet. That was my dad, and he was successful because he he raised Mm -hmm. five kids. He didn't raise them perfectly, but um, he raised his youngest to know the zip code of his weaknesses Mm -hmm. because he knew the zip code of his weaknesses.
0: Mm -hmm. Final three questions. What does Holy Smokes mean to you and how has it contributed to your spiritual journey?
1: It is a great. I mean, going back to what we talked about earlier about the idea of being able to unwind over, uh, over a cigar and talk about things that matter. It's hard in life, day to day, with work. It's harder now, in the pandemic, and I don't know how it's going to come back as life gets back to what normal was. When you at work, especially. Uh, there were so many serendipitous moments that came up as you just would bump into people. You and I experienced them when we worked at Focus. You'd bump into in the hallway, we'd have a chat, and you'd be able to share about life. And it's harder to do now when life is so much Zoom meetings that start at a certain time, and you talk over each other, and you know, it's like everybody's on satellite delay, and it's weird. So I, I love the fact that there's room for conversation. That's what I love about the podcast format There's no we got to go to commercial Mm -hmm. Um, so you can have a conversation that goes in different directions so that you can get all the oxygen out of you to tell the story. But also the other thing I love about it, Steve, is that, you know, the to be with people that don't make you feel like it's sinful to smoke a cigar or to have a drink. Now, you know, one thing I haven't said. I'm sober 24 years, but I don't think alcohol is demon hooch, right? I don't think, you know, I had no talent for social drinking. If I did, I would do it. I just, I had no talent for it. Many people do, and that's great. I love it. I still love being in bars. I still love being in that kind of environment. So I think what Holy Smokes does is it allows Christians to come to a place, non-judgmental, where they can uh, talk about the things that they enjoy while doing the things that they enjoy. Yeah doesn't get much better than that
0: if you could have a holy smoke with any three people throughout history living or deceased who would they be can't name jesus
1: <laughs> well dang it i was gonna say jesus um any three people living or deceased and they have to be real They can't be superheroes right no they could be no
0: there have been people that have given fictitious characters from books that they've loved or
1: no i would um I would want to, I don't remember my grandfather, uh, Mm. my dad's dad. uh, He was a cigar smoker. Uh, My brother has his ashtray. So I would love to have a, to know my grandfather because I didn't know uh, my Mm. grandfather. So there's one. Two would be the first favorite baseball player I ever had. Guy in the Cubs, uh, an outfielder for the Cubs, still alive, named um, Billy Williams. Mm. I fell in love with baseball, watching him play baseball. Ernie Banks was just a little bit before my, he was still there, but he was on the way out. Billy Williams was uh, ascending at that point. And then, um, you said I couldn't name Jesus, but you didn't say I couldn't name anybody else Mm -hmm. in the Bible. So Mm -hmm. I would say uh, Moses. Mm. Why? I would pick Moses because I have a a lot in common with him. Moses had a bit of a temper. Yeah. I have often looked to him when he was asked to call water out of the rock. Instead of calling it out, he smacked it with his staff. And that was it for him. And he had had moments where he was, uh, he had lost his temper and God forgave and forgave and forgave and, and, and there were no consequences per se. And that one was consequences. No promised land. And I wonder... I've used that in my life as, I, as, as my own temper will rise. You know, I don't know what the number is, but is there a number that it pushes it too far and I've gone too far? Not that God can't forgive anything, but there are consequences that I'm not expecting. That God forgives, He does, and often that forgiveness comes without consequences that hurt too much. But sometimes there are consequences that hurt relationships and do those kinds. of So I'd love to talk to Moses about just mm-hmm. the way that he that he lived what was it like going from not even having your own cattle you're tending the cattle of your father-in-law right the herds of your father-in-law and you go from that to you know being the the, the father of a nation that must be a, have been a wonderful journey and, and I think Moses has probably had a you know this kind of conversation that we've just had to sit down over a cigar and have that kind of conversation about Moses' inner life that would be fascinating to me I'd love that. I'd learn a lot. And hopefully I'd be able to apply those lessons to my own life.
0: Mm. Final question. If we're to meet one year from today and I got a bottle of Diet Mountain Dew (laughs) and and another great stick, what are we celebrating?
1: I hope a year from today we're celebrating you, Steve, um, being in, uh, if not married, being in a fulfilling uh, mutually beneficial relationship in which you and your boys Mm
0: -hmm.
1: form that complete family again because i would love to look into those eyes Mm -hmm. with that happiness in them again not that there's not happiness in them now uh, but i would love to look there and hear those stories from you
0: I love you, my man. Thank you.
1: I love you, too.
0: Gary Schneeberger, thanks for being on the Holy Smokes Podcast. Love you, brother.
1: Love you, too. Thanks for having me.